It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. All right, Jason, are you ready to dive into part two of the what is it? Blissful, balanced, and no, wait. How do you say the name of the? What is it? It's, I know it's, oh, yeah. Blissful, balanced, and badass. Mm-hmm. The ebook. Why'd you look at me like you didn't know? No, because for a second <laughs> I thought, oh, did I get the order right in my mind? Because I love alliteration. That's one thing that I really enjoy is, is putting the phonetics of certain words together that start with the same letter. And so I just liked the three Bs. And sometimes I get the three Bs confused. Yeah, that's true. Blissful, balanced, Easy badass. Easy to do. Well, for the listener, we recorded part one of this, which is based on an ebook that Jason offered. And so you can actually download the free ebook if you go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And look in the resource section. It's actually kind of hidden, though. So it you'll get this ebook if you download our other ebook called You Are Enough. So it's a twofer deal. I would recommend just downloading all the freebies that we have because there's a lot of value in them. And who doesn't like free things? I mean, it's free, valuable things, I should say. Yes, absolutely. You know, we don't want to just give you something that you're not actually going to use. And the reason that we recorded the first part of this episode, which is just the previous one that came out a few days ago, uh, you can also find it in the show notes, which we have for every single episode. So for this episode and all the others that came before and after it, You can see whatever we're talking about, all the links. So if you're ever curious to dig in further about what we discuss on each episode, that's in the show notes at wellevator.com. You just click on the podcast button at the top of the website, or you can go directly to podcast.wellevator.com. And uh, you could bookmark that if you listen to a lot of the episodes and you find yourself wanting to see the show notes. There's a show notes section on the website that'll link to this ebook that we're going to dive more into. And uh, in the first part of this subject matter, when in, in the previous episode, we got through about half of the book. So what we've been doing is talking about the different sections in the book because it's a seven-step ebook. And we talked about fitness. We talked about food. And there was one other thing. Do you remember what it was, Jason? I believe we talked about relationships. Okay. We already did the relationship side of it. We did. forgot about that. We did. Thank you for the reminder. Yeah. Okay. Well, then we're going to talk about the next step in the book today, or in the rest of them, actually, the second half of the book. But the first step, the fourth one, technically, but the first step in this episode is mindfulness. Yes. And so I'll read the first page of the ebook to get us started. So Jason writes, in the previous chapter on relationships... I touched on the concept of seeing clearly what is, seeing beyond our illusions and doing the work to dissolve our attachments, expectations, assumptions, and demands of life. True mindfulness, I believe, is in cultivating a healthy, grounded, balanced, and sane relationship to the nature of life itself while seeing that we are also life itself, not apart from it, not separate from it. We are life. And therefore, the nature of reality, 
of life is our essential nature as well. We get into trouble then when we are in resistance to reality and not accepting what is happening in the present moment. Mm, yeah, this is something that for me, I feel, well, first of all, it's <laughs> presence practice and mindfulness is nothing new. I mean, we look at Zen Buddhism, we look at the work of Byron Katie. I was you know, fortunate enough to go to her school for the work, the teachings of Eckhart Tolle, Deepak Chopra. I mean, so many people talk about mindfulness and presence. For me, though, I, I think there's a deeper layer, which is looking at sort of the tenets of wabi-sabi, the Japanese philosophy, which is all about imperfection, impermanence, and the ever-changing nature of reality. And I think often as human beings, we get stuck in wanting things to stay the same, wanting to control things, wanting to manipulate things, wanting to make them as we want them to be. And I think that there's such a beautiful cultivation of surrender that we can start to exercise and work on. Whereas even if reality isn't what we wanted it to be necessarily, or we weren't able to control circumstances or manipulate the mechanics of life to have it be exactly what we want. I think um, Joseph Campbell said this best. He's one of my favorite authors. And I often talk about his book, which is one of my top three books that has affected my life, which is the Joseph Campbell Companion. It's um, a selected compendium of works throughout the years of his talks at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur. And one of his biggest things is transposing our mythology, Greek, Roman, Sufi, Egyptian, all the great mythologies, and how do those teachings, those parables and those fables pertain to modern life, right? And a lot of those things, his, his thing is like the true essence of a warrior is to say yes to everything. And if you say no, or you have a spirit of negativism toward the ferocity of life, the unpredictability of life, the uncertainty of life, then you're not fully alive. And I think for a lot of people, myself included, there's this idea of I'm only going to be happy. I'm only going to be content. I'm only going to feel good about things when everything's the way I want it to be. Once I have the right car, once I have the right partner, once I have the right house, once everything's lined up exactly as I envisioned, then I'll finally be good and I'll feel content and I'll feel joyful. But his approach and the ancients are like, if you can surrender to whatever comes and really accept it, like full acceptance of what's right in front of you. That's true presence. That's true mindfulness. That's in Joseph Campbell's eyes, being a true warrior. And I think for me, mindfulness, that's a huge component of it is, wow, can I be okay if I have, well, obviously it's easy if you have $300,000 in the bank. Right? That's pretty easy for everyone. I'm content. I'm joyful. Why does that feel easy? Well, the common idea is like, you know, going back to the more abundance I have, then I'll feel safe, secure, grounded, joyful. And one of my practices has been in this regard of mindfulness. Can I still maintain that state of joyfulness and clarity and enjoying my life, even if I have $30 in my bank account? But why is that joyfulness tied into finances? It's interesting how you brought that up. Yeah. Well, I think that finances for me and for a lot of people is a thing that is very much tied to our feeling of security and feeling okay about our lives. And especially right now is the time we're recording this episode there's a lot of financial uncertainty in the stock market. There's a lot of financial uncertainty with people losing their jobs or getting laid off. I mean, we're in a time right now where that's a massive trigger for a lot of people. But to me, I, I, I also feel like if we're all in, in it together, to yeah. me, that actually makes me feel safer. Because whether it's ignorant or not, I feel like it's very different when everybody is experiencing the same thing. Versus when you feel like you're the only one experiencing it. And why is that? Like in examining this part of our, I suppose, 
connectivity, Whitney, and this this mindfulness, why does that make you feel more uh, safe or comfortable knowing people are experiencing the same thing? Like, what is it about it that engenders that emotion for you? Well, when it comes to money, it's mm. like if we really think about what money does for us and why it makes us feel secure, it's usually to get our basic needs met. Yeah. And then after those needs are met, we look for other needs to be met that we think can be met through money. Right. But if, for instance, like right now, if everybody is struggling financially, then it's like, well, everything has to shift versus when you're the only one, then you're the one that has to deal with the problem alone because other people aren't concerned about it. So they're not going to necessarily shift as you're shifting. So I think money is just such a relative thing. It's relative to our lives. It's relative to the world. It's relative to the time that we're in, to the circumstances. There's so many factors at play. And I just always feel like it's so important for us to examine our relationship with money. And I'm particularly sensitive to anything that has to do with numbers because I feel like we put a lot of weight on numbers in general. Right. And a lot of the times it's unnecessary because most of these things are just made up. They're just made up rules. Even money is just like an it's literally just a number. But we've we as a society have put so much importance on money that thus it starts to be tied into our security. And thus it it feels like it can make a big difference when it comes to how we feel and our mindfulness and all that stuff. But I think actually part of mindfulness is having awareness and really paying attention, like, is this a reality or is this something that I'm making up my head? Mm, right. And how do I define what a reality is? Well, this is interesting because I have had so many conversations with people about, is there an, ob- is there an objective reality or is reality completely subjective based on our programming, our thoughts, our belief systems, our perspectives, our past, our projections in the future? You know, what, what is the nature of reality? And people are saying, well, Things like gravity or things like the law of attraction or, or things like, you know, the, the sun rises in the morning and the moon rises in the evening, you know, the, the, the objective nature of reality. But it's one thing that I think about, too, and one thing that I, I remember practicing for the first time when I was working with Byron Katie was this meditative walk that we would do every single morning when I was in her school of not naming things, of where we would pass by a tree And instead of saying, oh, that's an oak tree, that's a sycamore tree, we would start to train ourselves to not label things or not have words for it. And so it changes reality when you don't have a definition or a word for something where you're just almost like a child. Before we had language and before we were able to label everything, there was a time when you and I and everyone on this planet who's human were just taking in the isness of something without labeling it. It wasn't a tree. It wasn't a cat. It wasn't a dog. It wasn't mama. It wasn't dad. It was, it was just we were with full presence with things without labeling them. So when I think about that, it's like, well, we manipulate reality in a way through language, through meaning, through defining things. And as you talk about money as an example, right, about security control, some people don't have anxiety around money. Their perspective, their belief system their viewpoint, their definition of the energetics of money can differ very much from another person. So then my belief system is that I think everything is inherently neutral in reality. I think everything is inherently neutral. There's a really good section about this in A Course in Miracles. Maybe this is where Byron Katie got that from as well. 
or it's, you know, we just because it came, uh, it's talked about in A Course in Miracles doesn't mean it's the origination for of sure. it. But uh, I remember as I was going through the daily lessons, which you can sign up for free on their website and have it emailed to you, which I really enjoy. I find it really helpful for me to stay present and mindful is just reading one sentence from A Course in Miracles. And then if I really want to dig into it, I'll, I'll go and read more about it. And uh, Marion Williamson also has amazing work. Most of her work is based around her studies of A Course in Miracles. And one of the things that I found most insightful and that really stuck with me from that is there's a practice where you look around the room and, and don't assign meaning to things, yes. you know, and you don't give them names. Yes. And just like you were saying, it's like such a powerful practice to realize that just because we call something a fan, you know, what does that mean? And what is it? And and we we came up with all of these things, I think, as part of the idea is that it's almost almost like uh, the Matrix, right? It's like in that movie, he, his ability to bend the spoon and the lessons in there were like, well, we kind of start creating all these definitions based on what we're taught. But who's to say that we can't bend a spoon with our mind, right? We're just taught that we can't do it. And we're taught to see the world in yes. such specific ways, but it's like all human construct. I think that beliefs and uh, Bruce Lipton has an amazing book and a lot of great teachings on this. We'll link to the show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And um, Bruce Lipton has a great book. I think he just celebrated the 10th anniversary of the biology of belief and how our belief systems and the meanings and definitions and energetics we assign to things in our life literally not just creates reality, but also has an effect on our physiology or the physiology of our being on a cellular level. One of the things I also think about this brings up to me is um, Abraham Hicks has a really interesting quote about someone at one of their seminars asked, why aren't people regrowing their limbs, you know, humans? And their response was because no one believes they can. But it's interesting though, right? Because there, there's, um, I went recently to the eye doctor, a person you recommended to me, a uh, great optometrist, Dr. Rabani here in LA. And I had my first uh, exam in, I don't know, three, four years. And he looked at the chart and he looked at me and he had this look on his face. He's like, your eyesight improved. I said, what? He's like, you're going to be 43. He's like, your eyes got better. Now, I believe we're conditioned in society to say, as you age, your eyes get worse. There's this thing that's always hammered into us. And so it's interesting to examine mindfulness and how our belief systems and conditioning play into possibility. Because I think for, again, myself and most people, we have this deep like, oh, well, you can't, you know, you can't do that. You, you can't, you can't improve your eyesight in your 40s. You can't regrow that fingertip you cut off. You know, I've, I've like cut chunks of my fingers off. It's kind of a little macabre, but during chefing and it's like, oh, should I go get that reattached or should I let it grow back? Like, let me see if I can grow it back. Not saying I can't do it. And I know that's an extreme example, and I'm not recommending if you cut your finger off in the kitchen that you're just like, I'll just let it regrow. But I did it as an experiment without trying to limit my beliefs of maybe I can grow this piece of my finger back. Maybe I should get it reattached. I don't know. But it's interesting to see if we stop ourselves from negative thinking and saying, I can't do this or this isn't a possibility. You know, I have so many isms and quotes. One of my favorite Dr. Dre quotes ever is I remember watching a documentary way back in the day about Dr. Dre and his music career and his, his mindset he was talking. He said, there was a huge shift for me when I realized that the only limitations in life were the ones I was creating in my own mind. I wasn't blaming life, society, anyone holding me back. He's like, I was the one holding me back. The limitations were in my mind, nowhere else. It's like, damn, we do that. 
And so to have this practice of mindfulness, I think part of this is to see where our self-imposed limitations are, where our negative belief systems are, where we're not even trying, where we're just like, I can't do that. That's not even a possibility. But we realize that there are tremendous possibilities if we remove our negative limited belief thinking around things. I've experienced, I'm still working, especially around finances on that. And especially in this moment where there's, for me as an empath, I feel a lot of worry about my financial future right now. And I'm, I'm recognizing though that that's a limited, there are limiting belief systems that are coming up for me around that right now. So that's what I'm digging into right now. Well, mindfulness is also the practice of paying attention to your thoughts and it, it's not necessarily about changing your thoughts either. Sometimes it's just watching them. Totally. And totally. breathing through them. And just it's so much of that awareness. So you don't necessarily have to change your thoughts. You can just observe them and try not to judge them too. Because the whole point of, of what we're talking about here too is that there is no right or wrong. Yes. We place definitions as individuals and society and, he, you know, just being a human being, part of what we do as humans is create all of these definitions and rules. But because we created them, we can also change them at any point. And when I think about that, that to me is very exciting. It makes me feel very empowered because I realize like I don't have to do things a certain way. I don't have to think a certain way, live a certain way, you know, have fear. It just starts to release a lot of that concern within me if I can just be present and do something like meditate, it's like, oh, I can dissolve it. But the important element is that you do that regularly, right? Because just as much as you can release, you can also bring it all back and get yeah. tense again. Yeah. I wanted to bring up one more thing that I think is super interesting. There's a, um, a woman, she's a, a coach and a teacher. Her name is Carolyn Elliott, and she has a thing called existential kink. And part of, <laughs> part of this, it's nothing sexual. It, it's more about reframing our belief systems and... um examining why we have perpetual cycles come up in our life. So part of this practice is, um, for example, if I'm having perpetual uh, roller coaster financial issues as an entrepreneur, that there's this thing where we look at, okay, why, why do I continue to have these financial issues coming up? And it's like, well, maybe, maybe I'm doing this because I'm getting something from it. Maybe I'm perceiving these financial issues as, quote, negative, but there's actually something positive I'm getting from it. And so the spin on it that I've looked at when I've used this technique is I think that there's a part of me that thrives on uncertainty and wants the challenge of, um, boy, how do I say this? Like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. How are we going to make you know payroll next month? How are we going to pay for this? How are we going to do for that? And there's a part of me that I think is getting off and this full formula of existential kink, like getting off on like, yeah, but I can do it. If my, if my balls are against the wall and I'm freaking out right now, like I know I can pull it off. It's almost this idea. Like an 11th hour motivation. It's, it's almost like this idea. Not, and it's, it's, it's not. You need like tension or you need pressure. Exactly. In order to make things exactly. happen. So to spin that instead of like, oh, this financial pressure you're always feeling as an entrepreneur is quote negative. Perhaps there's a part of me that's getting off or thriving on the tension, the 11th hour thing, the like, I can pull this off. And there's a part of me in my psychology that's thriving on that. And once I started to look at that a little bit, I went, oh, shit, this is this is an inter interesting framework to look at this in a different way. And so I think sometimes we can have something that we label as, quote, negative, 
But if we dig into it, maybe there's something we're getting from it that's fueling us. And it's a fascinating thing to look at it in a different way, put a different lens on it. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll wrap up this conversation about mindfulness by sharing a superhero action step, which is at the end of every section or chapter within the Blissful, Balanced and Badass ebook, which again, you can find the link to download that so you can read this more in depth at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Go to the podcast show notes and you can search for this episode or you can go to the resource section of our website and download the You Are Enough ebook and that's how you'll get this one. So the superhero action step is the next time you find yourself in an uncomfortable, challenging or grossly inconvenient situation, and you find yourself dissolving into a reactionary state of being, stop yourself as quickly as possible. Stop, close your eyes, take a deep breath, put your hand on your heart and ask yourself what's real here, what's truly important right now. This can literally stop the cycle of toxic, damaging reactivity before it even begins. Breathe, breathe, and breathe some more. Take a few moments, if possible, to ground yourself and examine your options for a response. Then, when you're able to calm your breath and your body, choose the most positive, loving, appropriate response to the situation. This practice can help to save you from saying or doing a lot of dumb shit that you might regret later. Trust me on this one. <laughs> Why are you laughing at that? Because I've said and done a lot of dumb shit out of a reactive state of being. And that's haven't that, we all that is literally just for me, one of the most important practices, Whitney, of stopping, <sighs> taking a deep breath and saying what's real here. And oftentimes our projections of future fear or our past pain is not what's real in the moment. So I think that is one of the most effective practices that I continue to do. And shout mm -hmm. out to my mentor, Michael Park, for teaching me that many years ago and reinforcing that for me. Mm -hmm. All right. Next section is about productivity, mm -hmm. which begins with, we all want to be more effective, efficient, and productive in our lives. Do we all want that? Is it safe to assume everybody wants that? Mm. <laughs> Sweeping generalization. You caught me. You caught me. <laughs> Time is a very precious thing, and we, we try our best to make the most of it. Hell, I've struggled with procrastination and lack of productivity at many different times in my life and have assembled a variety of strategies, tools, and mindset hacks that will help you get unstuck, get your ideas flowing, and keep yourself balanced throughout your workday. Well, I bet you this section is going to be very, very um, appealing to people as they read this book as they listen. And uh, in the ebook, Jason, you share what your cycle looks like. So you can uh, read all of this in the book. I think productivity is really interesting because there's so many different dif different definitions of it. And we've, we've talked about this throughout the podcast. We talked about how the two of us are a bit averse to the hustle mentality. And the word busy. Oh, yeah. Very averse and want to flip that, <laughs> want, want to subvert this that. This is a long section in here, too, Jason. Well, I wanted to give a lot of tips. very in-depth. It's, I it's to give one a lot of the tips. longer sections in the book. It's like 20 pages long. Thank you. So lots of, lots of different tips and, and perspectives in there. And ultimately, at the end, when you gave your superhero action step, here are some of your suggestions. One was start using a Pomodoro timer today and make daily to-do lists that are prioritized. And I, I can't remember if you talked about this on the podcast, but we definitely talked about this in our online programs. 
So if you, the listener, were not aware, we have a few different offerings on our website. One of them is called Wellness Warrior Training. And we also have a program called the Consistency Code, which you can sign up for and listen to and do at your own pace. But we originally had done it in real time to help people be really accountable. But both are, are great courses if you're interested in learning how to be mindful and productive at the same time and really work on your wellness. And uh, I always think of the Pomodoro timer, Jason, because you're very passionate about that. I am. And for several reasons. Number one, I have a tendency to get so deep into my work that I don't take breaks, Mm -hmm. that I literally will start to feel that my body is in a position that's beyond uncomfortable. That's probably detrimental because I'll get so sucked in, in particular to say a writing project, because I love to write whether it's blog posts for our website or, you know, working on a new book or I just, I've always loved to write. But the downside of that is if I don't use a Pomodoro timer and give myself time blocks, I'll sit there for hours with my face glued to the computer. And it does, first of all, I find it's less productive in terms of I'm grinding or pushing at a certain point, or I'm so sucked in the zone that I'm not taking care of my own physical needs. So for me, a Pomodoro timer is great because I can do structured time blocks where I find that I'm much more efficient by working in time blocking and I'm building in breaks where I can literally get up from my chair at my desk, walk around, stretch, have a snack. And it's it's much, much better for that. So for me, I'm a huge fan. They're free. It's Pomodoro timers are a free app, but structured time blocking I found has increased my productivity because it focuses me more. And I think a big part of productivity is focus. So I've gone so far as to take my cell phone and put it in the next room in a drawer on airplane motor on off so that I'm not bugged or I'm disabling iMessage on my computer. So focused, distraction-free work time in specific time blocks is a succinct way that I think has just rocked my productivity. I mean, it's a very simple way to say it, but I think, yeah, reducing distractions when possible, working in time blocks, making sure that we're taking care of our physical and mental needs during the workday. I think these lead to higher productivity. And I love this is something you encourage, Whitney, is instead of using the word busy, um, busy today, like saying, no, I'm productive today. And that small hack, that languaging hack, I think is, is huge. It's huge. I want to get out of that hustle, busy, destroy ourselves at all costs to win or make money and have a more balanced approach. I, I think it's almost counterintuitive, but I can say for sure, and I resisted this for a long time, is caring for myself and building in self-care at first felt really hard because I was like, you're going to be less productive. You're going to make less money. What about the business? Blah, blah, blah. But I have found that when I take the best care of myself, I actually feel like my business does better or our business at Wellevator does better when I'm taking better care of myself. So to the listener, if the idea of self-care is like, yeah, but I got to take care of this, this, and this, and we all have these responsibilities, I get it. But there's something about, I don't know, the energetics of caring for ourselves that gives us more energetic bandwidth to do the other things we need to do. It's also interesting because it seems like a lot of people believe that time equates to money, and that's not always the case. Just because you work longer hours doesn't mean that you're going to make more money. Some jobs, it's true, right? If you're paid hourly. Of course. But it doesn't have to be that way, actually. You know, some people are paid salary. Some people are paid in a monthly fee, as like a consultant, a freelancer, uh, there's all different ways to generate income that don't have to be time dependent. And sometimes being paid hourly, your productivity goes down 
because you're like, well, it doesn't matter what I do in this hour as long as I work in this hour. But a lot of the times, it's more about what quality that you're producing versus the quantity of time that you're spending on it, right? So it's it's very important to shift that. I think it's it's an old school thing that was created back in like, I think Ford actually might have created that nine to five structure. Henry Ford, when he yep. at the factories, if I recall correctly, that's when like the nine to five job was created. It was a way for them to have more structure around the work environment. And then it just really caught on. A lot of businesses were doing it and we've been doing it ever since. And so just as we talked about earlier, you have to really think about like, why is your workday structured that way? And is that actually supporting your productivity? Because a lot of the times we have all this stress too, that we think if we don't do these hours, we're not going to make money. But most people are paying you for the results that you're given, not the time that you're giving. And time is also very connected to our energy, right? So the amount of energy that we're putting out in that time or during those bouts of of focus and productivity, you know, so really managing your energy and deciding how is that ultimately going to help you to reach that output that's going to give you the money that you're looking for, right? Or the goal that you're trying to get. It's similar to runners as well. Like I think marathon runners, like they have to be very mindful of how they exert their energy throughout the course of the race. Pace. It's It's all about pace. Exactly. And efficiency. Yep. 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 So some other things that you brought up in the superhero action steps of the ebook, Jason, is you said to set attainable goals for yourself that stretch you past your current limits and make you feel uncomfortable, meaning you're going to have to work for them and be open to new possibilities. Yeah, this is something that I've, for me, been flowing with and sculpting in different ways over the years in terms of goals is that... I remember a few years ago when, yeah, I think it was when the TV series was on in the cookbook and and like five, you know, five years ago. What TV series? Uh, How to Live to 100 on Cooking Channel, which uh, we'll link to that in the show notes because you can download it on Amazon Prime. You can download it on iTunes. So for anyone who, and we've talked about it a lot on the, on the podcast, for anyone who hasn't seen it, you can still get it and see it out there. And, but what is How to Live to 100, Jason? Oh, How to Live to 100 is my TV series on the cooking channel that was out a few years ago. So I want to give context. Yes, thank you. Somebody might be listening for, for the, the very, very first, first time. time. Yes, yeah. got it. So I remember back then, I think I had um, I had a goal. What was it? <laughs> it was something like $100 million in a year. And some people were like, that's great. Set big goals. But to jump from you know 100,000 a year to 100 million, it's not outside of the realm of possibility. But there was a part of me that didn't believe, actually believe I was going to do that. I was just trying to be like, you know, have big balls, set big goals, like go for it. And to me, when I say attainable goals, I think they're, for me, I think as I've had incremental goals that have made me stretch, that's felt like a confidence builder as opposed to setting a goal that's so big and so lofty and so way quantumly beyond where I'm at now that if I don't get there, I feel a feeling of failure. So to me, it's not, it's not, it's, and also I want to make this point. It's not about avoiding failure, right? Because I think that rather than saying a failure, it's, it's a learning opportunity, a growth opportunity. But for me, I think the incremental goal structure to me is a momentum and confidence builder as opposed to, I'm going to go from a hundred grand to a hundred million again in the realm of possibility. But for me, it's, I felt it was starting to set me up for mental failure rather than creating incremental goals that I build on the way to the ultimate goal. 
So I'm a big fan of that structure rather than like what I used to do. I don't know. To me, that that's a more useful thing in uh, in my cosmology. You also said it's important to ask yourself if you're actually enjoying the process of producing or creating your work or if you're slaving away for some imaginary outcome that may or may not happen just to validate your sense of self. Hell yeah. Because again, it's a once I make the million dollars, once I get the car, once I get the house, once I'm in the Forbes 30 under whatever the hell it is, whatever arbitrary material goal that people create for themselves. Yeah. It's like, are you chasing the validation? I say this because I've talked about this in previous episodes of the podcast, um, that there's this idea that once I have, be, or do this thing, then I'll feel enough. I'll feel good enough. That's been my deepest wound is the feeling of not being good enough. And I've certainly chased those material goals in the sense of once I have, be, or do this thing, then I'll feel enough. I'll be enough finally. And I think, um, I think a lot of people are on that hamster wheel or a version of that materialistic hamster wheel that a lot of the goal setting and a lot of the hustle and grind mentality is chasing the dollar, chasing the fame, chasing the notoriety. And it's like, you get there and then what? Then what? You're going to feel enough then? I, get, I guarantee <laughs> in my experience that when you get whatever the damn thing you want is, it's not going to make you feel enough. It will not. You'll still be chasing. You'll still have a void inside. Well, that's why it's so important to step back and look at why you want what you want. The why. And yes. when I was first starting to study money and get a better grasp on it, I remember one of the courses or books I was reading. Gosh, I wish I remembered who it was. I was a few years ago, I got really into anything money related and just really wanted to have a better relationship to money. And one of the best pieces of advice that I received is if we write down how much money we need and then how much money we want and really assign a reason behind each number, we actually will find, many of us, that we don't need or want nearly as much as we think right? Like if you write out your finances, a lot of us can get by with a lot less money than we might realize. It's just that culturally, we compare ourselves to each other and we hear about different amounts of money and we think that people are happier than us in general. We, we tend to believe that other people have it better or are happier than us, especially through platforms like Instagram when people are showing or, or just social media in general where people are showing their highlight reels like, oh, that person has enough money to go on a fancy vacation and they look happy in their photos and videos. So if I can have as much money as them, then I'll be able to go on vacation and have as much fun. But the reality is, A, not a lot of people are are really that transparent about how much money they have, right? And where they got it from. So we make a lot of assumptions about money in general that we don't even realize how it what it took to get there. Some people might have worked a lot harder than we realized, or some people may have inherited it or something, you know, like it might've come to them in what we perceive as easier, right? But that vacation may not have been as happy as it was in the photos, of course, but also we can go and have just an equally fun time by spending a lot less money. So it's interesting if you really start to 
like do the numbers and do the math, you can realize that your experiences can be wonderful on a budget. Your experiences may not need to cost as much as you think. You may not need to make as much money as somebody to have the things that you want. You may not not need to have the fancy car that somebody has to feel happiness. And they might not be as happy as you think they are just because they have the Lamborghini, right? So it's kind of like really doing that math and writing it down is a phenomenal exercise because we tie productivity so much into money. We realize like, oh, actually, I don't need to work as hard as I think I do because I don't need as much money. Or you can also find out that you can work less time and make the same amount of money or more amounts of money if you shift the way that you work or the type of work that you do. So it's really about busting a lot of misconceptions that we have. Yes. A lot of people have misconceptions about money. Yes. It's a huge struggle and it gets perpetuated. But when you sit down and you write it out, you can have so much insight and that can tie very much into how productive you feel or want to be. And that leads me to the end of this chapter where Jason says, please be kind to yourself when you fall short of your own lofty goals. You're human and allowed to get knocked on your ass sometimes. Keep creating, create again, create some more, repeat, you rock. And I, I also would like to add in that a lot of the times we think we fall short of goals. Yeah. But again, that's just a matter of perception. It is. Right? It is. I, I think a lot of times we are very hard on ourselves. And yes, we are human. We're allowed to fail, but we can also not look at failure as such a negative thing. Agreed. Right. Like failing might be that you simply did not reach your goal, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are a failure. It's just that you did not reach that goal at this time. And so it's just keep going over and over again to get up and allow yourself to fall down is really important. Yeah. And I'm really into this is a, a bit tangential, but related. I'm into the etymology of words and the deeper meaning of where words came from and how the meaning of words has changed over time. And similar to failure. I think the word sin has such a, obviously, uh, for some people, a deep weight. I mean, just that word, you know, I've sinned. The etymology of that word, the actual meaning is in archery, when you miss the target, you miss your mark. That's the actual meaning, the origin of the word sin is you, you, you miss your mark in archery. And so we've somehow changed the meaning of that word throughout history to mean and we've gone against uh, we've gone against God, or we've done something um, that is that is you know ethically wrong. You know, sin has a much different connotation for a lot of people now. But the etymology and the meaning, the origin of that word, is very very different. So that just sparked when you had that conversation about failure, Whitney. Is it doesn't have to be such a defeating, negative, painful thing. You know, like I said earlier, we could look at failure as an opportunity to pivot, an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to change our course of action. It doesn't necessarily have to be an inherently destructive thing. Absolutely. The next section of the book talks about organization. And you start off with a quote, which is, one must still have chaos in oneself to be able to give birth to a dancing star. Frederick Nietzsche, one of my favorites. (laughs) And you said, indeed, the contrast and the chaos within us can result in some pretty amazing stuff in our lives. But when it comes to the organization of your life, chaos is going to get carted by the doorman at the club. (laughs) So what does that mean? (laughs) 
that means it, it this actually got brought up the other day um someone asked me why my house is so organized like the, the way my clothes are organized and the way that my you know my musical basically like if you come to my house it's really really organized why do i do that she's like we why why is why is everything just so and i said because life is chaotic a lot of the time there's a lot of chaos in life chaos is part of the natural order of things and for me i feel like if i can maintain a level of organization with not just my business but you know the way my closet is organized the way that my kitchen is organized the way my house is set up that in times of chaos i feel a calm confident compassionate energy because of the way that i've organized my life now it, it may not be how other people organize their life because i have my own way that i organize my files and my paperwork and my taxes and my clothes but to me i feel that organization is a way to efficiency because i know how and where things are set up and stored and arranged but i feel that organization can be a balance for chaos in life that's how i approach organization it's a balancing mechanism for the chaos that i'm going to inevitably experience well in the superhero action step at the end of that chapter here are some of your recommendations for mm -hmm. organization yes First, look at your daily, weekly, monthly calendars to see where you can create more time for self-care and self-nourishment Yes, in whatever form serve you best. Fitness, hikes, reading books, taking a bath, bird watching. Ooh, I don't think about bird watching that much. That's a good one. Journaling, whatever your pleasure. I love that you put bird watching in there. <laughs> I love and Jason watching immediately birds. pointed out to the window behind me. It's you know, actually, that's a very that's a very lovely thing to do, especially when you're feeling stressed, right? Oh my god, it's wonderful. I mean, it, whether that's bird watching or just going to a park and and watching whatever wildlife or nature is there, there's something very peaceful and grounding about just communing with nature and animals in general. I think like broadening that communing with animals and nature is just a grounding centering thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important to talk about because a lot of us do not place self-care and self-nourishment on our calendars. Absolutely. And we we get into this busyness concept in our heads. And actually, a lot of people, I'm willing to bet, don't really stay that organized on their calendars. Like It's not like an hour by hour thing. I'm somebody who, for the most part, puts major things on my calendar always. I should say, I just said for the most part and always in the same <laughs> sentence. So I'll go back to say for the most part. In most cases, I put all major things on my calendar. I block out time. I plan ahead when it comes to drive times or commute times. I'm very mindful of what my day is going to look like. I try also not to overschedule myself. And I start to put things like rest on my calendar as well because I will notice my habits and they're the tendencies, I should say. So one thing I started doing recently is when I get up early for an early morning yoga class, I will put on my calendar time to rest afterwards because it's so early that I tend to be exhausted afterwards, right. especially exerting all that energy. So that way I won't schedule anything immediately after that time where I'm putting out so much energy. I give myself to time to recover, basically, whether that's taking a nap or reading a book, whatever that may be, just resting. And I have gone through phases where I'll put book reading on my calendars. So I really do recommend experimenting with it. I, I say for the most part because I'm not super strict about it. Sometimes it stresses me out to be super organized. But I do th go through phases where every 
hour of my day is blocked out. And that includes the self-care time and the self-nourishment. I think a lot of of people just overschedule themselves and they're just focused on the necessities. They're just focused on being productive. They're focused on their output. But we also have to include time for the input, right? And that can help us doing things that might not serve us. Like maybe instead of reading a book, you do want to go for a hike or you do want to take a bath or journal or read a book or bird watch, right? Listen to a podcast, do a meditation. All of those things can go on your schedule and that will help you prioritize them and also be organized. I think, yeah, to me, it reminds us of, you know, Brendan Burchard, one of our favorites, his one of my favorite quotes of Brendan's is if it's not in your calendar, it's not real. He doesn't mean real as in objective reality. But to me, I interpret his quote for my life as it's an accountability partner. Whereas if I want to sit down and record or write music or read a book or work on a new product, whatever the thing is for you, dear listener, it's I feel putting it in your calendar and putting reminders that are grabbing your attention. It's an accountability partner. It keeps you honest to the commitments you've made to yourself. So to me, I think to Whitney's point, it's about balancing and not overwhelming yourself with too much. But if something is really important to you, and you want to stay consistent with it, scheduling it on the calendar to stay organized, it helps you be accountable to yourself. You're building that self-care practice into your day as a non-negotiable. Yes. You also suggest looking at any extraneous, how do you pronounce that word? Extraneous. Extraneous, thank you. Or superfluous. (laughs) Commitments or obligations that are no longer serving you and just let them go. You do enough already. Yep. And you are enough already. And getting rid of the unimportant to-dos, you'll create more space inside and out for the good stuff to come running for you. Less is more, babe. Try minimalism and see what happens. Yeah. And life, on that point, life abhors a vacuum. And here's what I mean by that. If you create space in your life, something will fill it. Life abhors, life does not exist in a vacuum inevitably something or someone or some activity will fill the space that you create. So if you feel, listener, overwhelmed, you feel like you're in a people-pleasing mode where you're doing too much and overcommitting, perhaps shedding those extraneous things, those superfluous things that aren't really feeding you on a soul level, a physical level, a financial level, a creative level, when you create space, you can fill that space with things that do nourish you and do fill you up. But you have to be the one generally, sometimes life will do it, but generally you need to be the one to take that initiative and create that space so it can be filled by something else. Wonderful. Well, the last section of your book, Jason, is called Life Vision. Ooh, yeah. And I really like the picture you chose for that. It's nice. It's very pleasant. So the chapter or the section begins with, it is scary or exciting. I think you said, is it? But it actually says it is scary or exciting to consider the vision for your life with a question mark. Oh, good. Got to change that. Let's switch it around. Is it scary or exciting to consider the vision for your life? It's an important question to ponder because it provides a glimpse into how you perceive the quality of your life. And to piggyback on that question... Jason wants to share one of his favorite quotes from Tony Robbins, who said, your quality of life is determined by the quality of the questions you ask. Man, this is huge. We go back to why, which is one of Whitney's favorite questions. She's a <laughs> yes, questioner. Yep. I also love I also love why because it, it it's a deepening question. I, I feel like it's one of those questions that helps us break through 
the surface level into our deeper motivations, our deeper desires, our deeper intentions? Why is is a great question. You know, obviously we've talked, I think, on the podcast before about Simon Sinek's book, The Start With Why. You know, so this is not a new concept. We're not like, oh, ask yourself why. This is a brand new thing. It's, But to me, it's an opportunity to spelunk the depths of your being and really get to, you know, why are you doing what you do? Why are you focusing what you are focusing on? Because I do believe that energy goes where attention flows. And what you focus on most is getting the most energy in your life. So I think this Tony quote is great because I often find that when I ask why, and it leads me to another question, leads me to another question, that I often end up in a space where I'm like, I had no idea that that was the actual thing motivating my behavior, motivating my desire, my drive. And so if I go back you know, to a lot of examples in my life, specifically around purpose and career and creativity and money and business, I think for a lot of years, it was this drive and this desire to prove myself. It was what I thought, oh, make the world a better place and give people tools to heal. And get, yeah, that was certainly a part of it. But subconsciously for a long time, I was unaware of my quote purpose or life's mission there was a huge part of it that was this idea that I had to prove that I'm good enough, prove that I'm worthy, prove that I'm worthy of love, prove that I'm worthy of success. And I found that to me, that became an unsustainable motivation for my life. Once I realized that that was a lot of the fuel that was pushing me was Will Smith had a great interview about this recently where he said, no amount of success is going to undo or heal the trauma of your childhood. No amount of success is going to heal or undo the trauma from your childhood. And man, that hit like a ton of bricks for me because it was like, yeah, I've been chasing in the past money, success, fame, notoriety, thinking that it will heal all the shit from my childhood I went through. And to that point, I got chills when I saw that interview with him because it was like, how many people in the world are on that hamster wheel of thinking that the trauma and the pain and the sorrow and the depression will get healed once they have that fulfilling moment. And so with life vision, I think asking the right questions to understand your motivation, your intention, what is the fuel that is pushing you forward and finding out, is it a sustainable thing? Because I think there's a deeper level of motivation that we can cultivate beyond proving ourselves, beyond material attainment into getting into a spirit of generosity and true service and uplifting others and giving our gift to the world And I think naturally when we do that, good things come. Uh, Marianne Williamson has this amazing book about where she talks about sort of like there's a spiritual bank or there's a reciprocal currency that when you're putting out good works into the world and you're doing it from a space of service and a spirit of generosity and giving your talents, that there's a reciprocity that the world, the universe, God, all that is, returns the goodness to you. It's so interesting because one of my favorite quotes from my mom, Susan, that I remember her just telling me as for years and years is the love that you put into the world will return to you tenfold. The love that you put into the world will return to you tenfold. And so I think if we can get to a point of our life's purpose and our life's work coming from a more sustainable place, we find that the love and the generosity and the spirit of service is returned to us. And it's not the reason to do it. Yeah, exactly. Not the reason to do it. it. Yeah, we're not like, oh, if I do this, it'll come back to me tenfold. But 
putting goodness and love and creativity and, and our heart into the world if we can do it from an unattached place. I feel it does come back. Mm-hmm. I believe Marianne Williamson and I believe my mother. <laughs> Because <laughs> they have similar qualities. We've talked about yeah, um, tangentially. Do, actually. Marianne Williamson and my mom are kind of similar in certain yeah. ways. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's more of like um, <laughs> their style is kind of similar. I don't know if they're in the similar age range. They but are. They, the way they hold themselves. So, and some of their wisdom tidbits too. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, for our final superhero action step for this book, Jason says, Ask yourself this question over and over again until you get a raw, visceral, connected, authentic answer. You will feel it when it hits you. What do I really want? Write down everything that springs forth into your consciousness after you ask this question. It will tell you a lot about where you are in life and where you're heading. You will likely get some surprising answers. So buckle up and ask away. I do this once a year without fail in my journal, where I ask myself, what do I want? And before resistance comes up, before what I- What the hell you want? What the hell you want? What the hell? There's, okay, so fact story, fact story. This is amazing. So I had a roommate years ago, uh, Janny, uh, and she had a story about this preacher that was at a church that she went to. And I she love said, that you and, remember where this came yeah, from, because yeah, I don't remember yeah. the context and, at and all. And she said this preacher at this Baptist church, his whole sermon was about this, was about this very subject, getting to the heart of who you are, what's your motivation, and what do you want? She said part of the thing was like, he's like, he got up on the pulpit and he was like, what you want? What the hell you want? And he just kept pumping. <laughs> you got to ask yourself what you want, what you really, really want. And that is such a powerful <laughs> question. It's a great. And also, if you are journaling or recording yourself and you, you ask this question, just start writing or just start talking. Don't resist. Don't think about it too much. Whatever the visceral primal response is, write that down or speak that into existence. I do this at least once a year. And it changes. If I go back and I look in my journal from year to year, Whitney, the answers I put down, some of them are the same, but some of them are different. Some of them have evolved. Some of them have grown out. Some of them are growing different heads like a hydra. But doing this at least once a year where you're like, what the hell you won't? And just write it down and see from an unfiltered, unrestricted, unresisting place what comes out of you. Mm-hmm. You got to let it flow. Yeah. Don't stunt yourself. Don't be like, oh, do I really just let it out? Like that, the power of unrestricted, unfiltered journaling, not just on this subject, but in general, uh, for the listener, if you haven't started journaling yet, the idea of journaling, I think a great place to start with this is morning pages. As part of your morning routine, to write one to two pages every single morning of free association, whatever's on your mind. I hate my life. Things are crazy. This coronavirus is freaking me out, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what I love my life. Oh, my God, my cat's in the corner. That crunching sound she makes is weird. Whatever, whatever it is that comes out of you in your morning practice, I think doing morning pages is a great way to start a journaling practice. Uh, And I want to give a shout out to a good friend of mine named Katie Dalebout, who has a wonderful book that was coincidentally released the same day as my book, Eternity. And the book is all about journaling and about the emotional freedom of journaling, and it's called Let It Out. We'll link to that in the show notes at wellevator.com. But check out Katie Dalebot's book, Let It Out, for a great starter guide to journaling and the power of journaling. Wonderful. Well, that concludes the two-part series of blissful 
balanced and badass tips, Woo. which was steps to strip away the BS, elevate your state of being and light up your life with love. And we hope that you enjoyed these two episodes. This is our the second time we've done a two-part episode because our first was about ayahuasca. Oh, yes. So if you, dear listener, are interested in more two-part episodes where we get deep, because we could certainly do long episodes. They could be two hours. But we'd love your feedback on this episode, this these two episodes, really, and any of the show, this might get uncomfortable. So if you want to give us some feedback, you can do that publicly or privately. We are available publicly through at Wellevator. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. You can write us on social media. You can comment on posts. You can write about us in your stories and we'll share it. You can go to the Wellevator website and comment on individual podcast episodes. There's a comment section in every show note. So at the very bottom, just go and comment and we'll respond to you and also make it public as long as it's not cruel. <laughs> uh, we don't allow cruelty in our sphere of Wellevator. If you also want to reach out to us privately, you can do that through email or direct message. Our email is hello at wellevator.com and we both read that. We love hearing from you. We love your suggestions on future episodes, your feedback on past episodes. And also, if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, on Stitcher, I believe is the other one. I'm actually going to look that up right now because I keep forgetting. Is it Stitcher that you can leave a review on? We actually have instructions for how to review if you have not done that. If you go on our website, again, podcast.wellevator.com, there's a, a whole section about how to review. And I always forget if it's, yeah, it is Stitcher. The only two podcast platforms that we know of where you can leave reviews is Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. You can't do it on Spotify. No, not yet. Not that I know That's of, shocking which is I, bizarre. I, I feel it? like a lot of people that have commented on on listening to our podcast, uh, at least from from people I've spoken to, it seems like Spotify is um is a pretty popular platform. So that surprises me that they don't have the the review option yet. FYI, Spotify. <laughs> FYI. Yep. And uh, just in general, we love to stay in touch. Being connected to one another is really important to us, and it's also important to your well being. Developing a community spreading kindness, asking questions, giving feedback, all of those things are really important in life in general. So we hope we do that. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back for another episode very shortly. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 